I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. Our text is the remaining verses in Luke chapter 19 in a message entitled, A House of Prayer. A professor by the name of Mark Buchanan told the story of a man who traveled to the USSR in the 1970s when the USSR was locked tightly in the grip of communism and the Cold War and was a formidable and menacing enemy of the West. The man's assignment was to visit the church there and to bring back a report regarding what he had found. He was quite disappointed with what he found in the church that he visited and thought that it was rather useless and described it as, and I quote, just a bunch of little old ladies praying. Now, it would take almost 20 years after that trip uh, for the mountain of communism to split and fall into the sea in terms of their unified effort. But when it did, God was awesome in his power. And the gospel came in behind that like never before. And uh, Mark Buchanan concludes his account of this story by saying, Beware of little old ladies praying. Better yet, join them. Prayer is powerful, and the passage before us today is a reminder of the importance of the centrality of it among God's people. Churches at times are tempted to build their ministries on any number of things, including pragmatism. If it works, it must be okay. Entertainment, if people enjoy the show, then it must be right. Or busyness, let's just do something. Let's keep people active and the calendar full. The reality is you can build a church on all sorts of things that are not necessarily biblical. Jesus makes the centrality of prayer clear. We highlighted in verses 28 to 44, Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry the Sunday before he was crucified. And it's been said that the language of approach to Jerusalem gave way to the language of arrival in Jerusalem as the Messiah came to establish the purpose for which he left heaven and came to earth for. The triumphal entry was a major turning point in history because Jesus came to lay public claim to his role as Messiah and as king. And Jesus Christ as king has authority over our lives. And because Jesus Christ as king has authority over our lives, we should do what he says, praise who he is, and believe in the one who alone can save. Luke 19, beginning in verse 45, this is what the word of God says. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priest, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. Verse 48, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. After Jesus arrived in the city, he went into the temple. It's important for us to understand the place of the temple in worship 
particularly at this point in the history of God's people. What preceded that was the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was first mentioned in Exodus 25. After God delivered his people from Egypt, God told Moses to build the tabernacle. It's also referred to in the Bible as the tent of meeting. It was for the purpose of the manifest presence of the Lord being among the people, for them to experience the Shekinah glory of God in their presence. And the people were to worship God in reverence, holiness, and sacrifice. Whenever they moved in the wilderness, the tabernacle was portable. So they would take it down and they would set it up again according to very specific instructions that God had given Once the younger generation settled in the promised land, King David expressed a desire to build a permanent place of worship, the temple of God. But because David was a man of war, he was not permitted by God to build it, and his son Solomon built what was a magnificent temple. Solomon knew, however, that when he built that magnificent temple, that it could not contain the presence of God. There was nothing that was made with human hands that could contain the presence of God. In 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 18, it says, Will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. By the time we come to the ministry of Jesus, the triumphal entry, and now him making his presence known in the temple, this is the temple of Herod. This temple consisted of three main areas, the outer court, what would be known as the holy place, and then the holy of holies. That's a generalization because there was a lot of complexity to the temple, but you get the idea of the essential construction of it. The outermost area of the temple with which we are concerning ourselves today was called the court of the Gentiles, meaning that it could be entered by all people. And being on the outer part of it, it was the largest of the courts. The area, along with Solomon's portico, a covered area on either side of the court's eastern entrance, was also frequented by Jerusalem's sick and needy who were looking for help. They would either get there themselves because they would presume that people coming up to the temple to worship and to offer sacrifices would care for them and perhaps show compassion upon them, or they would have someone else who would help them get to that place uh, to try to get uh, what they needed. There was a fence of sorts that separated the Gentiles from the rest of the complex. The Gentiles and the ceremonially unclean Israelites could not go beyond that to the interior areas. There are two distinct events, I believe they're distinct, that are recorded in the Bible where Jesus cleansed the temple of money changers. The first one is placed at the beginning of his three-year ministry when he was uh, in a position to make a, a whip of cords and drive them out. The second is the one that is before us in this passage. Now, who were these money changers and why was Jesus taking this action? Well, according to the law, the law required that a temple tax of a half shekel be paid uh, by all males over the age of 20 when they came uh, to the temple. The Jews and visitors from other places paid their taxes when they would come to offer sacrifices. 
uh, foreign coins were not accepted, so the money changers would exchange them and provide whatever they needed for that. But uh, there was a problem with it in that they were making a significant profit for what they were doing. In other words, they were taking advantage of the situation. One commentator noted that the markup was as much as 20 times on the sacrificial animals that were sold in that same area of what it should have been. So the issue was that a place of worship had been turned into a place that was a dishonest marketplace. There was exploitation. There was a taking advantage of the people who could not afford to be taken advantage of. And of course, that was prohibited by the Mosaic law. And it was certainly frowned upon by Jesus, which is why he was taking this action. Jesus was not pleased with what he found. And verse 45 tells us that he began to throw out those who were selling. He began to throw them out or to drive them out, much like he had done with Uh, the demons in driving them out and casting them out. There are two other accounts from which I'm going to draw before I'm done today in Matthew 21 and Mark chapter 11 of this same event. They're parallel tracks that give us a little bit more insight into what took place in those moments. Verse 45, Jesus says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, in verse 45, Jesus cites in part Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And this is what Isaiah 56 and verse 7 says, the words of the prophet. uh, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. God said, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, that word in Isaiah goes back to when Solomon dedicated the temple as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8. You might remember that the Ark of the Covenant was received on that day into the most holy place. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and Solomon prayed so that all the peoples of the earth may know the name of God and fear him and do as your own people Israel do and may know that this house bears the name of God. So this was a significant place. And in Isaiah's words, I think it not only spoke of the dedication of the temple, I think it has some prophetic significance as well uh, to when people from all nations and every tribe and every tongue will come to worship God and to give him glory eternally. Jeremiah 7 and verse 11 says, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your view. Yes, I have seen it. So the words of Isaiah also echo in the words of Jeremiah. Rather than being a place where God was sought and sacrifices were sincerely offered and repentance was genuine, the temple had become a den of thieves. Let's uh, take the remainder of our time and focus in on the words here, my house will be a house of prayer. Now, we trace the beginning and the purpose for the tabernacle and the temple, but we've got to take this one step further in context to understand where we are as New Testament Christians. After Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended back into heaven, all believers in Jesus were referred to as the house of God. 
just as we are today. Hebrews 3 and verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The next step here is that the Holy Spirit now indwells every single believer as the house of God or as the temple of God. So that means that when we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, that the Spirit of God seals us for the day of redemption. He comes and indwells us, and now we are the house of God. We are the temple of God according to the Scripture. Now let's apply this from a prayer standpoint. When you pray individually as a follower of Jesus, you are functioning as a house of prayer. Further, when we as God's people gather together to pray, we comprise a house of prayer. So what's in view is not something that's been built with human hands. It's not something that is physical in nature as far as the material part of the world. It is people who have been created in the image of God, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who are now the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, and we are functioning together, praying individually and congregationally, as the house of prayer seeking God. Now, it's interesting. Every year, various publications put out their best places to live lists, and uh, we don't seem to make very many of them, unfortunately, although um, I I would argue some against that. But I often wonder how they come up with those things. It's a subjective list, right? And I've also thought when people read those lists, they think, you know, I'm just going to uproot my entire life, and I'm picking number 14, and I'm going to move everything that I have to number 14 because this publication says it is the 14th best place to live in this country. You know, I don't know how they come up with that. But what I can tell you is, as a Christian, the best place to live as a Christian is with the awareness of the presence of God in your life through prayer. That's the best place to live. The best place to live is with an awareness of the presence of God in your life through prayer. Because you are knowing the one who made you and redeemed you and sustains you and will one day see you safely home to glory. So let's take the balance of the time that we have and consider these verses and look at specifically three aspects of prayer that I think will be helpful to our understanding and our personal practice of prayer as well as our congregational practice of prayer. And the first aspect is this. Prayer requires access to God. Prayer requires access to God. Now, I believe a major issue with what Jesus encountered in the temple courts is that the actions of the people were hindering access to worship. And when access to worship is hindered in any way, then the result is that God is robbed of his glory. People are somehow hindered in their worship of God, and God is robbed of his glory in that. Think about how people go to great lengths to get access to people that they think are important in this life. Oftentimes, it it focuses on money. Uh, People are, are looking for a way to get close to people who have it. Uh, There was an article in Business Insider with some suggestions on how to get access to people. And the writer said, 
Uh, would you like to have a famous author or prominent entrepreneur or well-heeled venture capitalist in your network? Of course. But they also always appear out of reach. Unless your cousin went to college with Malcolm Gladwell or your dad spent his teen years spinning records with Richard Branson, it may seem like there's no way in to the inner circles. People want access to the people that they think can help them in some way. It might be financial, it might be an influence, it might be in connections with other people that will give them those same things. And yet what the Bible teaches us is that we have an all access pass to God through prayer. Now, how do we get there? Well, back in the Garden of Eden, you remember that Adam and Eve had access to the presence of God before the fall of man. Uh, They communed with God, and then when sin came in, it prevented their ability to be in the physical presence of God and ours as well. So the way that we have an all-access pass to God is through Jesus Christ. It's through the finished work of Jesus. So now, don't miss this connection where Jesus says in the words of Isaiah 56 and verse 7, my house will be a house of prayer. He is the one that secures our access into the throne room of God. I love the way Hebrews 10 and verse 19 puts it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, watch this, through the blood of Jesus, Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So the only way that we have access to God in prayer is through the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. This is the purpose for which he came, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can know God, so that we can commune with God, so that we can pray and have a spiritual life because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. So not only do we have access, but the scripture is telling us that we can come with full assurance of faith. That because we have access to God, we don't have to stay out there on the outer courts. We don't have to stay out there on the edge. We don't have to stay out there somewhere on the perimeter. We don't have to stay out there somewhere in, in the shadows. We can draw near with the full assurance of faith. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. John 14 and verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will live with him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17 and 18 says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is Christ and this is the Messiah who was there in the temple dealing with the situation at hand. And the actions of Jesus at the temple signified the beginning of a new era of the Messiah. The money changers had to leave the temple uh, since the time was coming ultimately when they wouldn't be needed at all. Even if they weren't exploiting people, even if they weren't taking advantage of the situation. Part of the reason that they were there is because sacrifices had to be offered. And those sacrifices not only had to be offered uh, once, but continually. But the sacrifice that Jesus gave was a once and for all. And none of this would be needed anymore because it would be fulfilled 
in him, the spotless lamb of God who would solve the problem of sin and render those sacrifices complete and any more as unnecessary. And I think Jesus was looking forward to a time as well when the temple in its physical form would not be needed at all. So here's what I say to you by way of application. If, in fact, you have an all-access pass to the throne room of God, and you do in an instant, in a moment, and if, in fact, God is inviting you in to come from the perimeter to come to the very middle of it all, then should you not make the most of your access to God? Your access to God through prayer is the strength of your spiritual life. Let me say that again. Your access to God through prayer is the strength of your spiritual life. And you know the flip side of that. If you are not making the most of your access to God through prayer by the blood of Jesus, you're going to live in spiritual weakness. Second aspect of prayer is that prayer relies on the truth of God. It relies on the truth of God. Look at verse 47. Every day he was teaching in the temple. Now, I love this scene. It'd be easy just to read that phrase and say, yeah, Jesus was in the temple. He's teaching. We're following the progression. He's headed toward the cross. We've heard it all. But I want you to notice what's happening here. He sets himself up as the resident teacher in the temple. Was this not, after all, his father's house? Was he not, after all, asserting his identity and his authority as he taught the truth? And I love what it says about the response of the people who heard him teaching. The religious people, they were angry about it. They wanted to kill him. But they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Friend, are you captivated by the truth of God? Are you captivated by the words of Jesus? Are you amazed at this truth that he has shared with us? Now, we're not told specifically what the content of his teaching was in those moments. But I have to believe that it was the content of the message he had preached throughout his entire ministry. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I think he was announcing the salvation of God and the fulfillment of the purpose for which he came. You remember back in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus came to Nazareth? He, he comes to his hometown where, where he grew up and he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stands up to teach. The text was Isaiah 61, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim a release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said to them, verse 21, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. That is amazing. That in that moment, as his public ministry is beginning to progress, he asserted who he was and the purpose for which he came. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God, which in part includes the belt of truth. And a soldier would often wear a very strong leather belt fastened around their waist to hold their garments in place and also to provide a place for their sword to be carried. And what the belt did was it held everything together. So the reason that we're told to put on the belt of truth is because truth holds everything together. Without truth, we're chasing after our opinions and the whims of other people and the sinful ideas and selfishness and all sorts of things that will get us in places that we do not want to be. But it's truth that holds all things together. And the Son of God is truth. He's the embodiment of it. He holds all things together. He is the one who secures our lives. And not only is the Son of God truth, but the Word of God is truth. And that's why we're told that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And here's what I think truth does as as prayer relies on the truth of God. I believe that truth aligns us in prayer to the holiness and the character of God. Meaning that when we pray, we are confronted with the majesty of God, the glory of God, the character of God. And the point of all of that is so that we can become like him, so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the will of God for your life, that you be more like Jesus. And when you're confronted with the character and the holiness of God, then you're drawn in and your heart's desire is to be more and more like him. And then as we pray, truth aligns us in prayer, not only to the holiness of God, but also to the heart of God, so that our desires for life begin to align more and more with God's desires, His will for our lives. And prayer brings us into a consistent walk with God in both his character and his heart for our lives. I love how Isaiah used the imagery of a peg driven into a wall to describe a man named Eliakim, who was the son of Hilkiah. Unlike the people of Israel who tended to trust in themselves for their strength, this man trusted in God. And as the story unfolds, he rose to the position of the palace administrator for King Hezekiah. And Isaiah wrote of Eliakim in Isaiah 22. And the scripture says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. I will drive him, listen to this, like a peg firmly into place. Truth and God's anchor in his life would secure his family, his life, and his role. And similarly, as we pray, the truth of God is our anchor. And what the truth does is it drives us down firmly into place. And it doesn't matter what the storm is that comes against us. It doesn't matter what the obstacle is that's in front of us. It doesn't matter what the enemy is that is approaching. If we are driven down firmly into place, then that means we are anchored in God. And God is able. And prayer relies on what is true, and God is the reality 
of what is true. Then there's a third aspect of prayer. Prayer results in praise to God. Now, I told you I was going to bring a couple of elements into this story from the parallel accounts in the Gospels. And uh, Matthew's Gospel adds that the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple. So in other words, after he, after he drove out the oppressors from the temple, Jesus ministered to the broken and the needy who congregated there. Now this is a little bit of an addendum to the entire story, but we must not miss it. Because Jesus cares for the broken and the needy. He cared for us and our spiritual brokenness and neediness. These broken and needy people were were restricted to the court of the Gentiles, and they could not go to the altar of sacrifice. In our sin, we are broken and needy and restricted from coming into the all-access presence of God. Jesus showed compassion and mercy And he healed people who were there. Jesus shows compassion and mercy and heals us, transforms us in Christ. And it should result in praise. According to Matthew, the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees once again objected and asked Jesus, Hey, do you you hear what these children are saying? What these people are saying? And Jesus replied, Yes, have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. So now here we've got a second instance. Jesus has already said, listen, if they don't praise me, then the rocks are going to cry out. The stones are going to exalt. And here are these children, and they're praising. They're bringing worship to the one who is worthy. So Jesus' answer was, yes, he had heard. And what he heard was perfected praise to the ears of God. That's what he heard. And when we pray because we have access to God and because we are anchored in the truth and we lift up our praise to God, what it is is it is praise that goes to the very ears of God and to the very throne of God because he's worthy of our best. And the hosanna of praise is a request for salvation, as we learned last week. Uh, It does indicate praise, but it literally means, Lord, save us or grant us success. And prayer gets our focus where it needs to be in order to glorify God. Prayer takes the focus off of whatever the situation is that we're dealing with. Problems can be overwhelming. The darkness can seem like it's foreboding. And we don't know what to anticipate or we don't know what to expect. But even in the moment that we don't know what to expect and we don't know what to anticipate, even in the moment when the circumstance seems dire, we can go to the Lord because the Lord hears us. And we can praise him. And further, we can praise him before we even know the outcome of the situation that we're dealing with. Because he is good and he always does what is good on behalf of his children. He can be trusted. And he's the kind of God, the only God, that we can praise. 
Before I close this message, I want to draw your attention for a second to Psalm 27, verse 7 and 8. There's one little phrase in there that I was just personally particularly moved by this week. The scripture says, Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. And here's the phrase. Seek his face. And then the psalmist says, Lord, I will seek your face. This word seek is interesting because it's plural in the Hebrew. Meaning that we not only individually seek the face of God, but together as the people of God, we seek the face of God. This implies that there's communion. This implies that there's worship. And what that says to me about the gathered people of God is that that we're not getting caught up in pragmatism. We're not getting caught up in entertainment. We're not getting caught up in busyness just to have people doing things. When we come together, we are coming together with a purpose. And that purpose that we're coming together for is so that we can bring praise and glory to the one who is worthy. That's why we're coming together. If we're coming together and we're just going through the motion so that we can check the religious box of our lives and we don't realize that we are coming into the very presence of a holy God who is worthy and who desires our praise and worship, then we've missed the whole point of what it means to be a Christian and we've missed the whole point of what it means to be a church. This is why we come. This is why we pray, because God has said, come near. Don't stay out there on the perimeter. Don't stay out there in the shadows. Come near, and as you come near, seek his face. This word face is often translated as presence in the Old Testament. You know what I've learned in my own prayer life? God's face or his presence can be obscured by our sinful selfishness. It can. We can go through all the motions and still miss the main point. But what happens in prayer is when we seek his face continually in every experience of life, we come to know him better and we get the blessing. It's grace upon grace. It is grace super abundant. It is grace overflowing. It is love beyond measure. It is love that never ends. And as the scripture says in number six, in verse 24 and following, may the Lord bless you and protect you. And may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Through prayer as you worship God, What you're doing is you're experiencing blessing and you're experiencing protection and you're experiencing grace and you're experiencing favor and you're experiencing peace. And all I can say is, Lord, may it be so in our lives. May this be who we are. May this be the character of our spiritual lives because we don't deserve any of it. But yet we've been given everything. I close with this quote from A.W. Tozer on prayer. He said, nobody ever got anything from God on the grounds that they deserved it. Having fallen, man deserves only punishment and death. So if God answers prayer, it's because God is good. And from his goodness, his loving kindness, his good-natured benevolence, God does it. And that's the source of everything. God does it. That's the source of it all. So when Jesus went into that temple, it was a message that 
that God was doing it, that the Messiah was bringing the blessing. And he's the blessing in our lives, but we have to know him by faith, by faith. Spire heads together for a moment as we come toward a close of the service. I don't know what all the needs are here in this place today. But here's what I can tell you for certain. God loves you with an everlasting love. And he invites you into his presence through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I've got that all-access pass just yet. How can I know? The Bible says if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. The only way to have that access to God, to be reconciled to him, is through repentance and faith. Only through the finished work of Christ. Nothing we can do, nothing we can add to it. No way we could ever measure up. But yet God invites us in. He forgives us. He grants us eternal life. And we have a relationship with him. You can take that step of repentance and faith today. and Come and follow Jesus. Listen, I know there's a lot of needs represented in this building today. Some of you are struggling with some physical issues, maybe some that are joining with us online or going through some very difficult times. And I want you to know that God cares. He'll hear your prayers. He'll draw you near. There are others that deal, are dealing with spiritual issues and family concerns and financial burdens and There are more needs represented here than there are people. And yet God is able. And he tells us, don't stay out there on the periphery. Draw near and seek my face. What are you seeking the face of God for? What are you asking and believing in God for? Would you just express that heart's desire to God? Father, we thank you today for the privilege we have to gather together. God, protect us from our own selfishness, our own pride, our own self-sufficiency. Humble us that we might be useful vessels for you. Help us not to get caught up in things that ultimately don't matter but to live right in the center of your will and bring you the praise and the honor and the glory that is due. Lord, may we be a people who live as though we believe your house is to be a house of prayer. We give this time of response and invitation over to you as there are spiritual needs and responses that need to take place. I pray that people would hear your call on their lives through the word and the spirit. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.